This morning's reading is taken from the second book of Samuel, beginning a reading from chapter 8. This reading is full of foreign-sounding names, which I don't know how to pronounce, (laughs) but I work on the principle that most of you won't know either. However, I'll do my best. I'm starting at verse 1. In the course of time... David defeated the Palestines and subdued the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metheg Amar from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadagazir son of Rebog, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the river Euphrates. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Armenians of Damascus came to help Hadazir, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Armenian kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and bought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Ahadaziah and brought them to Jerusalem from Tabar and Berathai, towns that belonged to Hadaziah. King David took a great quantity of bronze. Then too, king of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadaziah. He sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadazer, who had been at war with Tu. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold and of bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab and the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadazer, son of Rehob, king of Zobar. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for his people. Joab, son of Jerahiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Eliud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Serehiah was secretary, and Benahiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'm very grateful to my parents for, for many things. Um, Yet, um, there were some things as I was growing up that I found very hard to stomach, quite literally hard to stomach. Um, and it would always begin with the phrase, um, it's good for you. You remember that phrase? Maybe you've had that experience as well. Um, eating cabbage, it was good, it's good for you. Um, uh, uh, eating um, oranges, which I hated as a child, all those stringy bits. It's good for you, son. Um, you'll grow up to be big and strong. Um, and then the, then the wholemeal bread. Why did we have to have wholemeal bread? Uh, it's good for you, was the, the comment. And um, you know the weirdest thing is, 
I love cabbage <laughs> now. I love oranges and I, I love wholemeal bread. It really was good for me. Thank you, Mother. Um, you know, um, that can be a little bit sometimes how we can feel about the Old Testament and a passage like this. Uh, on the surface, we can't see what possible good it could be for us. But after a while, as you, as you feed on it uh, and dig deeper into it, we find out that it is good for you and it's good for me. And that's what we're going to look at, is trying to understand why that is. So, Father, we just pray that, particularly this morning as we meet, that you would indeed help us to see how your word um, is good for us, even those passages we find hard to understand. Please, by your Spirit, speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might like to keep that passage open in front of you at 2 Samuel chapter 8. And perhaps the first thing to think about is whether we first come to this um, is this meant to be read as a, a negative passage, um, or is it meant to be read as, a, as something positive? Um, after all, what we have here is um, uh, lots of talk about conflicts and conquests and, and, and wars, and to the modern reader, and maybe you're like this, you kind of bulk against it, because we're kind of predisposed, aren't we, um, to think about these things in a rather negative way. We we look at things like imperialism and power grabbing and saying, isn't this just something like uh, akin to, to Putin and the Ukraine? That's how we tend to come to it. We have sensibilities. Um, but I think the first thing to say is that we are, I think, meant to read this in a positive light, really because of what it says in verses 6 and 14. There's a repeated fra- refrain there, which says, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. See, it's the Lord's um, doing. The Lord has given these. And uh, what we have here is a, is a victorious kingdom, a picture of a victorious kingdom. And it acts as a bit of a summary uh, after all that's happened in Israel. A lot of commentators think this is a summary section, a sort of ending off of everything that has gone on so far. Um, it's, and it captures a picture of what the kingdom is like, the kingdom of God. Not, not in its entirety, it, but it gives us some outlines to the kingdom, a bit like giving a, a child an outline that needs to be filled in, but it gives us an outline. Um, so we've had a bit of history and geography already um, this morning. I thought I'd give a little bit of uh, more geography because there's lots of names that's been pointed out and places and sometimes it can feel a bit overwhelming. Maybe just give you a bit of a snapshot. Let's pretend, shall we? We're good at that. For a moment that, that we here in, in Blackheath are Jerusalem. So this, spatially think of this. We're Jerusalem. Edom, where's that? Well, that's down there in Brighton. Okay, that's where Edom would be. Okay. Um, uh, uh, Moab would come further round and you'd come to Tunbridge. That's where all the Moabites are. Seems appropriate for them. No, it doesn't seem appropriate for them. And then you come further around and you would come to the, to, um, to, uh, the Ammon and the Ammonites where Rochester would be. Uh, the, and then the Philistines, well, they're down on the coast in Southampton. Okay, they're all down there. And then you've got up north. Okay, you've got up the Aram Damascus. 
uh, sort of Leeds. You've got Aram Zoab, which is kind of Manchester, and then way, way Hamath. That's like Newcastle. I mean, who would go to Newcastle? I mean, Liam's not here, but yeah, that would be kind of Newcastle way. Why Aman? Here we have a victorious kingdom, okay? A picture of it. And, and it's in the outline of the kingdom. And it teaches us different things. And I'm going to suggest it teaches us four things. And the first thing it teaches is that the kingdom promises. What we have here is fulfilling of promises that have been made to David and to Israel. Verse 1 begins, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And then you get all the, the, the ways in which he's done that. And of course, that is a fulfillment of God's promise. Um, only back in chapter 3, Abner, where we heard about him, was sort of coming in behind, swinging in behind David, said there in verse 18, he said, For the Lord promised to David, By my servant David I will rescue my people from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And you get this this fulfilment of what's going on in, in the nation of Israel here and David and this kingdom. It actually stretches back a long way into the, the, into the, the Bible. It goes back to Numbers, for example, in Numbers 24, verse 17 to 18, when Balaam's fourth message, it says, a star will come out of Jacob. I think that star is meant to understand that as David, the anointed one. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. Eden will be conquered. Seir, his enemies, will be conquered. But Israel will go stronger and stronger. Now, I think, you know, we might struggle with some of this language, mightn't we? Um, we might struggle with the way that it's done. We might struggle with the thing about the three lines of Moabites. Uh, one third being... Uh, allowed to live and two-thirds not but before we get to that I think we do need to not we need to not miss the simple fact that the promises were being fulfilled here God had made promises 400 years earlier he'd made these promises he was showing that he had a plan uh, that he had a purpose that God is a planner uh, and he has a has his sovereign will over it History is not some kind of random collection of events that are out of God's control and sovereign will. Uh, And I I think sometimes we can feel like that, can't we, when we see what's going on in the world, everything that we've just been praying for that Gemma uh, uh, led us in. But what the Bible does is it reassures us that God has a plan, uh, that God um, has a purpose, And that you and I, even if we can't see it or understand it, can take confidence in that. We can take comfort in that. That he's going to bring us from A to B. That he has a plan. I think think that's a great encouragement for us. God's kingdom promises are good. He brings things to pass. That's that's one of the outlines that we get. The second is the kingdom pattern that we see here. There's a kingdom pattern. We notice that there's the repeated defeat of um, the nation David's enemies. 
Uh, seven times it says that they are defeated. Um, and this kingdom has a pattern, and it comes uh, through conflict and conquest. Let me just take a moment to uh, explain this. David, as king, is bringing rule to bear, isn't he? That's what a king does, brings rule to bear. Um, He's bringing justice. That's what it says in in verse 15. Um, And now, how do we understand that in the light of the the New Testament, the idea of conflict and conquest? How do we we kind of get our heads around um, that? Because we might want to quickly, instinctively, um, dismiss that pattern uh, that kingdom pattern of conflict and conquest, because it, it grates at our own sensibilities. And think, oh, that was then, that's not for now. But there is a pattern here, and it's important that we see it. Um, patterns are important. doesn't mean they say they're exactly the same, but there's a pattern that we need to see. I was thinking about this, and I was remember being reminded um, when my cleared out my parents' house because my um, mum went into a home. I found um, her typewriter. She had one of these 1970s typewriter that you unzipped. Um, does anyone remember any of those? And you flipped it open. And I remember it very clearly. Um, you had to do some odd shift thing to make it have an apostrophe. And sometimes it would catch your fingers as well when it slid backwards and forwards. Um, it, just, it, it had ribbons and it had ink and they sometimes smudged or they were faded um, and you know it was, it, it was a thing of the 1970s anyway it, I reckon if I was to show my children this typewriter what would you think they would think um, I think they would still get what it was for don't you um, they wouldn't go, oh, or was that for making cheese? You know, I, you know it, it, it still has a QWERTY keyboard. Um, yes, it's a bit slow and it, it's fading. It catches your fingers sometimes. It sort of wants to eat you. It has oddities about it that we don't quite understand and, and have to work out. But I reckon they would understand that was the Chromebook of the 1970s. You know, that was the iPad, <laughs> Uh, of them, they would kind of get it, wouldn't they? There's parallels. That's what I'm trying to make. Yes, it's a simple illustration, but it, it's the point, isn't it, here? We're not, we're not comparing apples to pears um, so that there, there are parallels here between the Old and the New Testament. I, think, I really think we need to see them and not think that somehow the New Testament contradicts what the Old Testament is saying to it. We need to bother with them. We need to, to hear my mother saying, it's good for you, <laughs> and understand why it's good for us. We have a kingdom that comes through conflict and conquest. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'll give you an example of it. If you think of Acts 2, that's quite a familiar psalm to us. It speaks of the Messiah and of the rule to come. It says at verse 1, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? 
It then goes on to talk about the Messiah and says, I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possessions. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Now that sounds like conflict and, and conquest, doesn't it? Yeah? And, and where do we see Acts 2 quoted? See it quoted on the day of Pentecost, don't you? You see it in Acts 4 when the, 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 the Christians are praying together. And um, when will we see this, this come to pass? Let's think about that for a moment. Where do we see it come to pass? We see it come to pass at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, where it says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faith and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. Conflict and conquest, but who's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord Jesus, isn't he? He's talking about the second coming, the kingdom pattern that's already been there for us with David. You see, Jesus predicted, uh, Jesus is predicted as here in Revelation as a warrior who will bring God's kingdom fully and finally through conflict and conquest. And that picture is already there for us to see in the Old Testament. And I think it's tremendous pressure for us, perhaps in the modern church, to kind of dismiss this theme We think it too aggressive, it it grates against our sensibilities, we think of it as harsh. But the Bible teaches that the kingdom will come fully and finally through conflict and conquest. There's a pattern going on, there's always been a pattern. Not everything is fulfilled yet. The pattern is there, the kingdom comes fully and finally through conquest and conflict. So sometimes we can miss that, that quite sobering teaching um, because even because through kind of good teaching, if that makes sense, because we look at other themes more strongly. For example, we see Jesus, don't we, in his day, um, dealing with the Pharisees who wanted to Jesus to bring the kingdom there and then by kicking out the Romans and establishing a kind of a rule there and then. But what they left out was that the theme what we see in, in the Gospels is that, that the kingdom does come, but it also has to come through suffering, through the cross, doesn't it? And the Messiah must do that first through his first coming. So Jesus will come again in victory, but that was not the point of his first coming. So, you know, even good teaching, but if you only teach those parts of the Bible, you'll miss the bigger picture of God's plan and purposes, that through King Jesus he's going to establish his kingdom, his kingdom rule, and it will come through a conflict and through conquests because Jesus is going to return in justice to reign 
forever and ever. And he will put everything right. And he will do it. And while it might be a sobering thought, it's actually a glorious thought. Because isn't that what we want? Is everything to be put right in this world of turmoil and chaos? Now, yes, there's, of course, there's a spiritual aspect of the kingdom um, going on as well. In Ephesians 6, for example, it rightly points out for the believers here and now, in, in Ephesians 6, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil. It means that we are involved in that battle, but we need to recognise the kingdom will come through conflict and conquest. But it doesn't mean, and this is really important, it doesn't mean that we're to, to wage some sort of Christian version of jihad, okay? Or some kind of um, crusades. That's not what we're meant to do now. Because this is Jesus, isn't it, who brings this. The Messiah, the King of all, fully and finally establishing his kingdom. So that's the kingdom's pattern, the kingdom pattern. And surely the cross, the cross teaches us, doesn't it, that no one defeats the dominion of darkness in a bloodless coup. There is a last battle. C.S. Lewis teaches us that, doesn't he, in the last battle of Narnia. They'll come fully and finally when David's greater, greater son returns and imposes his rule on all the earth. We said it in the creed, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So that's the kingdom pattern. Thirdly, there's the kingdom passion here. The kingdom passion. David um, gets lots of stuff from his victories. Did you notice that? Lots of spoils. Verse 7, gold shields. Verse 8, huge amounts of bronze. Verses 9 to 10 uh, tell us about two, who was really happy that David had given Hadaziah uh, a good kind of going over. And he brought a tribute to David, silver, gold, and bronze. Well, what's he going to do with all this stuff? I mean, is he going to put line his walls with all his trophies and go, look, you know. <laughs> is he going to do that? No, he doesn't do that. It tells us what he does with it. He tells us in verse 11 and 12 that he dedicated it to the Lord. He gave it back to, to the Lord because it was the Lord's victory. All the wealth poured into that. That's what David's passion was, was the Lord, not sort of making himself big in this. He wanted all the focus to go on the worship of the Lord. And that's why... Um, he wanted to build the temple, wasn't it? And lots of this stuff was going to be used to, to make that because his priority, his passion, was the worship of the Lord, the sovereign Lord. That was the centre of it all. That's all he cared about was the glory of God. You know, for us, how are we to think about that for, with our stuff? What's our passion? I mean, I remember that, always remember that illustration that's um, stuck with me. If you want to know what somebody worships, you want to know what somebody's passions are, you look at their bank statement, don't you? Because <laughs> it tells you where you spend, our, where we spend our money. And of course, everything has, everything we have is God's. 
and we give it to him in worship. So I wonder what your passion is. What is your passion? Do you have kingdom passion this morning? Or is a comfortable home our passion? Not that there's anything wrong with a comfortable home, but is it our passion? Is a nice, comfortable school for our kids our passion? Nothing wrong with a good school for kids, but is that our passion? Whatever it might be, where is our passion? Everything we should be dedicated to the worship of God. So that's... um, I was thinking about this in connection very much. I've been reading a book. Somebody gave me this in the church. I won't embarrass them by saying who it was. And I have to say, this is one of the best books that I'm reading. It's um, called For the Glory, and I think it always should say For the Glory of God, but they, they left off the God bit. But it's, it's the uh, biography of the life of Eric Liddell. And this is fantastic. I'm only halfway through. But you, you read about a man, you, you might know the story. He ran he, the Olympics, 1924. He refused to, to run on a Sunday. He still won the gold medal in the 400 metres, didn't run, run in a different event. You may know the story. But what people don't know is about his life in China and how he went there as a missionary. He actually died there as a martyr, um, seeking to give glory to God because that was his passion. And uh, if you want a summer reading, this is my plug. This is a great book. I'm really enjoying this at the moment. For the Glory of God by Duncan Hamilton. Um, It reminded me of this, of kingdom passion. He had a kingdom passion. And and we need that too. Uh, Finally... Um, there is kingdom preview here going on, which we've touched a little bit on. Um, verses 15 to 18 at the end of the chapter um, act as a summary section about David's reign. talks about his administration being set up, talks about all the officials that are in place. Um, after many years of struggle that go back um, many tens, uh, many decades... Um, a struggle with Saul and his kingdom, and now his kingdom is in place. It acts as a kind of a summary section. Um, And we see the type of kingdom it will be. We see the tone of this kingdom. It says, verse 15, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all the people. Justice and righteousness. Um, did David do everything perfectly? No. Um, were there some glitches? <laughs> yes, there were some glitches along the way. Did he do everything perfectly? We will find out very soon that he didn't. But the tone of it was about doing what was right and doing what was just and doing what was true. And it's giving us a preview of a kingdom that is to come. There was also order in the kingdom. He assigned all these key officials that we read about with unpronounceable names. And David's kingdom gives you a taste. It gives you this preview of something to come. This is not a perfect one here, but it tells us of what a kingdom ought to be like, where there is justice and where there is righteousness and where there is truth. 
I mean, it's stark contrast, isn't it? If you, if you know your scriptures, you know back in Judges. You remember what that Judges was like and it, how it ends, Judges? It ends with that very telling phrase at the end of Judges. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It was religious and moral chaos. Here we have this foretaste, this preview of a better way, a more glorious way of what a kingdom should be like where righteousness and justice reign. That's what I want. Is that what you want? I hope we do want that. In a world full of chaos, full of religious and moral chaos, we want a king who can rule in justice and righteousness. What about for us? And personally, we're not kings like David. We're not to rule in battle. In the, that was me ruling in battle, by the way. I didn't know whether you noticed that. Um, yet shouldn't this be, in a sense, we should be in this preview and pattern of this kingdom as well? In our homes, in our work, when we're at the gym when we're at the school gate, wherever we might be, shouldn't we be carrying our lives out, seeking to do what is right, to do, seeking to do what is just, seeking to do what is true and honest and loyal? We could add to those kingdom values. If we are following this morning King Jesus in his kingdom rule, there is an opportunity to give a watching world around a glimpse of what this kingdom is really like. Give the watching world a view, a preview of a better way, a more glorious way that will come fully and finally to pass at the end of time. Our kids should see it. Our neighbours, our friends should see it. The community in which we live as a church, should see something distinct about us, a glimpse, a preview, a foretaste, a pattern of the future kingdom. Yes, it's going to be imperfect. We're not going to get it right, just as David didn't. But, like my mother said, it's good for you. (laughs) Let's pray, shall we? God, our Father, we thank you for your word to us um, this morning. We, we thank you for your kingdom promises. We thank you for the kingdom pattern. We thank you for the kingdom passion. And we thank you for the kingdom preview that we see here in your word. Please, Father, would you help us to see King Jesus more clearly? We thank you that he rules now. He sits at your right hand on high And one day he will establish fully and finally his kingdom over all heaven and earth. May we long for that day when righteousness and justice rule. As we wait for that day, we pray, Father, by faith we will trust in King Jesus. And that we will wait for his return, seeking to follow the pattern of his kingdom. Seeking to do what is good and right and true 
in the places that you've called us to be, that we may be your kingdom people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.